This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. He said, I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him. That he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing or whatever, you just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who were incarcerated here. My name's Anthony, and I am talking to Sky down in Texas. Hi, everyone. How's it going, Sky? It's good. How about you? Oh, can't complain. Excited to share some stories. I've got a pretty depressing one today to wrap up the episode. Uh, I was going to say, I think we have to end on that. So that's fun for everyone. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, everybody. Well, I think mine is a little less depressing. So I guess we'll start with that today. All right. Who are you going to cover? Today, I am talking about number 7769, Frances Webb. Um, She was in for forgery, but unlike a lot of my other forgers, um, I do have a pretty good amount of information on her, so um, it won't be me being like, well, she was born, and then she forged a check, and then that's all I know. (laughs) Um, So, sources today, um, her inmate file, Ancestry.com records, FamilySearch.com, Idaho Daily Statesman articles, articles that I found on newspapers.com, an article entitled January Blizzard of 1949 from weather.gov, weatherunderground.com, and Wikipedia, and the sources that I found there. So, Frances Webb was born Clara Ann Hall on January 25th, 1906 in Kelvin, Arizona to Thomas Hall and Mary Martin Hall. Thomas, her father, was a copper miner. And her mother, Mary, had supposedly been married once before and had two children from that marriage, Joe, Manuel, and Elizabeth. Now together, Thomas and Mary had five daughters, of which Clara was the fourth. So there was Mary, born in 1901, Dorothy, born in 1903, Rose, born in 1905, Clara, born again in 1906, and then Barbara, born in 1909. So Clara claimed that her mother ran away to be with her ex-husband named Dick Flowers when she, being Clara, was only two years old. And then she also claimed that Mary was killed by Mexican renegades on the Mexican border trying to get back into Mexico. There was, like, no details on, like, why her mother would have been in Mexico beforehand. So there are some questions, like, as to who her mother really was. Mm. This story about her mother being killed by Mexican renegades seems 
kind of impossible. So Clara, if her story was true, meant that Mary died in 1908. But we know that the youngest daughter, Barbara, was born in 1909. And then I also found a 1910 census where Mary is listed as living with the family. So there's a weird lie happening there. Um, So... Clara's intake sort of family survey says that Mary Martin Hall was born in Oklahoma around 1865. And again, it's here that I found that information that she had been married to a man named Dick Flowers with whom she'd had Joe Manuel and Elizabeth. Now, the Ancestry family search records that I found state something a little bit different. So apparently Mary Uh, was born Maria Juana Martinez in Arizona in 1880 to Jose Francisco Martinez and Bernada Coronado. Now, she was probably Mexican in ethnicity, but she was American by birth. So that even though she had sort of this Mexican heritage, we don't know that she for sure had ever been to Mexico, though in Arizona seems probably plausible. Maria and Thomas Hall married in 1898. Family search records state that the Halls, so again, Thomas and Mary, um, had a son, Fred, and then another daughter, Elizabeth, rather than having been born to a previous marriage. So Fred doesn't match that Joe Manuel name that we know, but Elizabeth does. So it just, it's... I don't I uh, I seriously don't understand this story. It makes zero sense to me. This may have been a story that Thomas told the younger children to sort of explain her mother's absence because her mother does leave her life a little bit when Claire's a little bit older and but I just I don't I don't understand what's going on. Um yeah. cuz yeah, cuz by 1914 Thomas marries a woman named Ava J Willoughby. And so that there is some indication of perhaps a divorce or a separation. Again, Thomas may have said, oh, she ran away to be with her first husband and got killed. And, you know, we're not going to talk about this anymore. I don't know. So, um, yeah, no, it makes no. I like seriously it was just like, I don't I don't understand. <laughs> and there again, there's some other evidence that. I don't think that this is, I'll get into a little bit later, I don't think this is the story at all about her mother. And weirdly, I think Clara knew that. Huh. Again, I'll get into that in just a second. Okay, yeah, I'm excited to hear. Again, in 1914, Thomas married Ava J. Willoughby, and Clara and her siblings were raised with her father and her stepmother. Now, she states that she, quote, got along okay with the stepmother during the time that the father was home, but when he was away, the stepmother beat her and her sisters. She reported having had quite an unpleasant, rather hectic childhood. Thomas and Ava were both Catholics, and so Clara was actually christened in the Catholic Church. Ava went to church regularly, Thomas went less frequently, um, and Clara, she wasn't super into it, but she did go. She went to school in Arizona, and she stated that she missed one year of school with a childhood disease. And she said that she liked school, except for math, and she received average grades in the other subjects. And then she claims that she wanted to continue with school, but that her stepmother wouldn't let her move past the eighth grade, but no real reason why her stepmother would not have wanted her to. A year later, at 16 years old, on August 8th, 1922, Clara married Lewis Isaac Warner at Pinal County, Arizona. Lewis was a World War I veteran, which actually was interesting at the time. They just called him, like, a World War veteran because mm-hmm. World War II hadn't happened yet, which right. is very, in our time is weird to be like 
oh, that that's what they consider, you know, like, just called World War. Lewis was also a rancher from Texas. He was about 13 years older than Clara. And together, Clara and Lewis had five children. Leonard, born in 1923. Donald, in 1925. Richard, in 1927. Alva, in 1930. And Lewis Jr., in 1932. The family lived in Hayden, Arizona, which is near Tucson. So, on June 10th, 1935, so about 13 years after their marriage, Lewis died from septicemia or uh, blood poisoning caused by bacteria getting into the bloodstream. Oh, oh, no. um, this death was, yeah, this death was really hard on, on Clara. And, um, you know, her oldest child was 12 and her youngest was three. Um oh. A letter from Clara's sister said, quote, At the death of her first husband, Lewis Warner, a veteran of World War I and the father of five of her children, she seemed for a time immensely relieved, but though she did not seem to mourn, seemed to go completely out of her mind. She was committed to the asylum here in Arizona and, am told, eventually paid some woman to assist her in escaping. Prior to this commitment, I had endeavored to help her to a mental readjustment, but met with failure. Claire herself said that her first marriage had not been for love, that she only married him because her stepmother compelled her to. Which again is like, I don't, I don't understand what this relationship is between herself and her stepmother. So probably around the time that Lewis died, she had to start working to make money for herself and her family. And so she worked various jobs over the years, including as a waitress, as a general laborer in a potato dehydrator plant, um, as a housekeeper, a nurse, and also as a babysitter. She claimed that she took a four-year course on nurses' training, but she lost her diploma, and the documents have verified that she had taken that course, and so I'm not sure when that would have been. That's just something that she claimed. On May 14th, 1936, um, weirdly her social history says 1935, but this is impossible because she was still married to Lewis. Um, he, had, he had died in June 1935, and this is May 36, so it had to have been May 14th, 1936. Um, she married Joseph Carl Harrington, who was just going to go by the name of Carl. Um, they married in Phoenix, Arizona. And Carl and Clara had two more children together, Joseph Jr., born in 1936, and Clara, born in 1939. So they're kind of getting real uh, original with the names. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> The marriage was pretty rocky. Carl was a heavy drinker, and so Clara started to drink as well. And it was during this time that she was apparently arrested twice in Phoenix and once in Tucson for drunkenness and disturbing the peace. Clara said that one night Carl and she were drunk and they were arguing and they made a lot of noise and so people called the police on them and so they were arrested. Um, but it doesn't seem that any major charges came of any of these arrests. Then, in late October 1944, Clara and Carl got in a huge fight, and they separated. And six days later, on October 29th, 1944, Carl died of a coronary thrombosis from oh. chronic arteriosclerosis, um, which is, like, hardening of the arteries, which oh. sounds like it's, like, a, you know, like a, a health condition that would sort of take time to happen. But there's mm -hmm. some question and suspicion as to the real cause of his death. The Arizona Republic newspaper reported that on the morning of his death, Carl woke up screaming that he had been poisoned by an aspirin tablet he had taken. 
One of his stepsons and a neighbor got him to the hospital where a nurse stated that he complained about pain in his stomach and mumbled something about having trouble at home. Death records state that the contents of his stomach were being examined, but nothing really seemed to come of this, like, poisoning accusation. Um, But the newspapers were kind of like, it seems like maybe he was poisoned. But again, I think given um, what the coroner states on his death certificate, I don't think that seems possible. After Carl's death, Clara claims that the children were actually placed in the foster system by the welfare department. She does get her children back, but I don't really know what the circumstances are behind sort of that claim, that particular event. So, um, according to her social history, on November 7th, 1943, she married a man named Jacob Weddle in Tempe, Arizona. Now, she says November 7th, 1943, her marriage records that I found on Ancestry say November 29th, 1944. So there's like a whole year difference. Um, And that may just be an issue of memory on her part. I would think that the marriage records were probably the more accurate of those two. (laughs) I would hope so, yeah. Um, (laughs) Probably around this time, between 43 and 44, Clara and Jacob moved to Idaho. I'm not really sure why they did or where they went. Um, I found records from the late 1940s of her in Jerome, Idaho, in Blackfoot, in Caldwell. So she's kind of all over the place. Um, I'm thinking sort of based on events, I'm thinking that she was maybe in Blackfoot first, Mm. um, because there are divorce records between Jacob and Clara that were filed in Blackfoot on June 3rd, 1948. Um, Again, just like her second marriage, she said their marriage was pretty unhappy. They both drank to excess and were, quote, drunk more than sober, end quote. Um, She also claimed that he beat her youngest son, Joseph Jr., quote, and I just couldn't stand that, end quote. Um, she says she tried to take him back several times to give him several more chances, but nothing ever worked out. Interestingly, he soon remarried, but according to the Post Register newspaper in Idaho Falls, Clara actually brought a suit of bigamy against him in March 1948, um, because their divorce, uh, records weren't until June 3rd. He thought their divorce had been finalized, but it hadn't been yet. And that's, you know, something that we see, especially in these early divorces that, you know, it'll come through and it'll say you had, you know, this is, you have to wait a year or night, like certain amount of time mm-hmm. um, before you get married again. So he actually pleaded guilty to the charge of bigamy and was sentenced to 60 days in the Bingham County Jail. And it was after this that he sort of made sure that the divorce was like final. Huh. But like things still are not totally adding up because in Caldwell in January 1948, she is actually arrested and charged with illegal cohabitation, meaning that even while, um, so clearly she and her husband are separated and she's living with someone else without being married to them, which again is not a charge that we're going to see in modern day, but that in the 40s. I mean, the illegal cohabitation goes all the way back to our good friend Fred Du Bois and the sort of Mormon contingents he was fighting against. But, um, you know, it was also used to sort of prosecute people who were not sort of who were, you know, theoretically engaging in marital uh, actions who were not married. And that's morally not a place that the United States is quite at yet. I wonder if it was used by the significant other to you know, get back at this person? Like, 
informing the police or if if the police were just enforcing this idea i feel like jacob like if he's trying to get married he thinks they're already divorced so it doesn't seem that he would have any motive to like get her arrested under that but it's possible i mean maybe they just didn't get along anymore i don't like i said i couldn't find details i don't really know what the issue there's no write-up about it um, this was actually, I think, in her um, in her file on her social history. Oh. Um, she was given a 90-day suspended sentence for that mm. particular charge. And then in March, she brings that, that charge of bigamy <laughs> against Jacob, which I think is very funny. <laughs> That's, that was my only thought, was like maybe she was getting back at him. And, you know, he, he had gotten her first with this unlawful cohabitation and then... Uh. You know how people are when yeah, relationships are falling apart, and oh, yeah, it can get ugly. Oof. Yeah, good point. So this is according to her social history. She had also been arrested in 1947 for supposedly writing two checks to a man who, like, she. So she wrote these checks, and she said she wrote it for a man who couldn't write, named Bill Harding. She wrote these checks oh. to a man named Dale Smith. And, you know, signed it. Bill Harding was like, I wrote these for him. One check was for $25 and one was for $75. That record said she was held in jail for six days and then released on a 90-day floater. That arrest, interestingly, doesn't show up on her FBI records. So this was something that she admitted to in her social history that that didn't come up. So 1948 was kind of a whirlwind. A year later, in August 1949, Clara starts getting in multiple instances of trouble. Um, On August 12th, she was arrested for disturbing the peace in Jerome, Idaho. She claimed that this was a misunderstanding, that she was trying to discipline her son, Lewis, and, quote, made a little noise in doing it, end quote, and, like, a nosy neighbor made a complaint. She ended up paying a $10 fine for that, but didn't have to stay in jail. And then only a few days later, she is in Boise. And we are going to take a pause to to talk a little bit about Idaho and Boise in 1949. Around this time, the population of Boise was at about 34,000, which is up 31% from the population uh, in 1940. So Boise is growing. 34,000 is not, you know, nothing to sneeze at for a little place like Boise, Idaho. Um, the state population overall was at 588,000. And so Boise made up about 6% of the state's population, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, 1949 is like fairly uneventful in Idaho and kind of everywhere. Um In sort of a wider context, the United States was two years into the Cold War and in the middle of the Second Red Scare. Um, So this year, celebrities that included Helen Keller and popular actors like Danny Kaye, Frederick March, John Garfield, and Edward G. Robinson were all named as members of the Communist Party by the FBI, um, which I didn't know Helen Keller had been accused of being a communist. Um, (laughs) Wow, I never, uh, I've never heard that. That's crazy. Who knew that? That same year, so on April 4th, 1949, NATO, which is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, was signed into law. And NATO was meant to be a military alliance between 11 European nations and the United States. And the treaty was created with an armed attack from the Soviet Union in mind. Or in other words, they're doing this because of the Cold War and the fear that that is inspiring. 
Um, NATO parties are, quote, determined to safeguard the freedom, common heritage, and civilization of the peoples founded on the principles of democracy, individual liberty, and the rule of law, end quote. So Idaho and much of the Northwest was really actually swallowed up by some extreme winter storms of the end of 48 and into early 1949. In that time, massive cold weather and blizzards hit Nebraska, the Dakotas, Wyoming, and Colorado. States further west, like Utah, Idaho, and Nevada, were greatly affected, but they had less snow. A major blizzard hit the northern plains from January 2nd to January 5th, and all of this snow actually continued through February. In some places, the snow reached over 40 inches and resulted in 30 deaths between plains states. So again, Idaho is a little bit further west. They're kind of missing sort of the eye of the storm, as it were. But even in Idaho, the winter of 48-49 was one of the worst that residents could remember. So I kind of dug through. I found some really interesting newspaper articles about what's going on. So in mid-February, 13.6 inches was dumped overnight on Boise and the surrounding areas. Now, to give you a bit of perspective, the average precipitation in February in Boise is less than two inches. Even January, which is normally one of the wettest months of the year, gets less than three inches. Like, we just don't get moisture. We don't get snow. So for overnight to get 13.6 inches is unfathomable. That's a snow day for sure. Of snow. Oh, for sure. (laughs) So the Idaho Daily Statesman described the snowfall as, quote, the heaviest snow in, in the capital city area in 33 years. Wow. Mrs. Neil Akins, who is a resident of Pioneerville, Idaho, which is about 75 miles outside of Boise, said it was the worst winter that she had ever seen. The coldest temperature in January was negative 35 degrees Fahrenheit, and the snow was eight feet deep. Eight feet. Which is, that's just, that's just 75 miles outside of Boise. That's not that <laughs> far outside. Um at Wallace, the Northern Pacific Railroad sent out its rotary snow plow over the nearby summit for the 50th time of the year <laughs> by March 29th. And according to the Daily Statesman, quote, normally the plow is used over the past less than a dozen times during the winter. The 50th time by the end of March. By the time the plow came through this time on March 29th, the snow on the summit was at 100 inches, bringing the total at that summit to 439 inches for the year. The snow depth average in Wallace at the time, 14 inches. Wow. I mean, unfathomable. So there were some small towns like a place called Smith's Prairie, which is about 20 miles outside of Boise, that had been isolated for two weeks since the snow fell. So major highways were closed, families had to be relocated, food had to be dropped in by airplanes to areas like American Falls and Rupert, just because you couldn't get anywhere. So after low temperatures and major snowfall in February, March began to dry out and the agricultural repercussions started to become clear. Interestingly, the livestock actually did pretty well. The Idaho lamb crop came in a bit lower than usual, but cattlemen suffered only little more than normal winter losses. At the 35th annual convention of the Idaho Cattlemen's Association, John Snook, who we know, said, quote, We didn't have more than normal losses. Our situation is a little different than in other western states because we planned to feed during the bad months and were prepared, end quote. Which is so John Snook to be prepared. <laughs> like, that 100% checks out. <laughs> 
So officials wanted to make sure that Idaho residents were prepared for the potential flooding that may come with melting snow. So in February 1949, a bill was introduced to the House authorizing county commissioners the right to levy emergency taxes for potential flooding in each county because of the extreme winter weather. Sponsors of the bill said that most of the funds usually slated for emergencies would be depleted from the maintenance and operation of road systems, so they needed to try to get a little bit more extra emergency money. Um, In April, a farmhouse administration official named Carl J. Magleby said that the FHA would attempt to designate Idaho and Utah a, quote, disaster area due to the winter's blizzards. Mm. This would allow them to request a $44 million loan from Congress to give to small farmers, and up to $12,000 could be given to individual farmers to buy feed, seed, or stock and make replacements as a result of storm damage. In Boise, the winter caused some havoc locally as well. J.T. McLeod, Julia Davis Park superintendent, said that luckily the harsh winter weather had not caused any damage to the trees in the park, but that any heavy frost that came in the spring could do damage to the rose shrubs in the city's famous rose garden. But even more sadly, the Boise Zoo, which was only about 30 years old at this point, lost buttons. The male mountain goat kid, who was about 10 months old, he died of a, quote, undetermined malady that may have been spring fever. Oh. This is, I mean, it's, yeah, it's kind of buttons. So buttons had been taken from the mountains of Lick Creek with a female kid named Patsy. And so officials brought both of these kids Mm -hmm. in and hoped that they would have offspring while in captivity. Apparently, Buttons had quite the personality. So this is from a Daily Statesman article. Quote, Buttons had been known for playing possum. The first day he was in the zoo where Patsy had preceded him by several months, he lay down and played dead for 10 minutes before stirring a muscle. He performed the same way on other occasions. Cred Cred Nosp, caretaker, thought Buttons was up to his old tricks when he went into the pen for his usual morning rounds. The goat was lying quietly with his head stretched out. But he wasn't fooling. He had died in the night. Oh. I know. Sad. Um, (laughs) Poor Buttons. Poor Buttons. But um, I thought that was just an interesting little tidbit of something that had happened in Boise. Because I actually really couldn't find much about how Boise was dealing with it. It didn't seem that Boise was hit quite as much as the mountain regions around. So um, I did want to find something about Boise. Poor buttons. So that's kind of what's, you know, happening in the early part of 1949. But we're going to go back to Francis or Clara. So on August 16th, 1949, Clara writes a $20 check made payable to herself signed with the name Elmer W. Chisholm. Unable to get the check cashed at the Greyhound bus station in Boise, quote, they caught me at the bus station before I had a chance to make my getaway. (sighs) So Clara claimed that she was with this man who she said was, quote, on the make and must have, quote, put stuff in my Coca-Cola as she felt dopey at the time. Hmm. She said, quote, I was under the influence of dope when I wrote the check. Therefore, if I would have had a sober mind, I would not have gotten into this trouble, end quote. She also stated that she didn't know why she wrote this check, as she didn't need the money. She had and had no idea of, quote, getting away with any such thing. So 
She is taken to the courts. She's arrested. She said that she actually took the last name of one of her stepfathers to keep one of her sisters from learning about her crime. Now, this may be proof that she knew her mother was still alive Mm. because a stepfather would apply to your mother's husband, right? Yeah, I think you so. Can't, you can't have a stepfather any other way. So that was another reason that I was like, I don't know if she's dead. Very weird uh, situation with her mother. So, yeah. yeah. She took the last name of one of her stepfathers, and so she was booked under the name Francis Webb for attempted forgery. So mm-hmm. from now on, since she's booked under the name Francis, even though we've called her Clara up to this point, we're going to call her Francis from now on. So this charge was soon changed to forgery, and she waived her preliminary hearing, and she was immediately bound over for trial. She pleaded guilty two days later on August 18, 1949. She was not sentenced for another month until October 21st, pending arrival of her FBI record and other delays in the court system that were not explicitly spelled out. She was sentenced to sort of the usual for forgers, 1 to 14 years. Apparently, while she was being held in jail, she attempted to kite two letters to her quote-unquote lover named Joe Peed, who was 27 years old, which is about 14 years her junior. So both of her letters were intercepted. Joe was from Boise. He was on probation for bad checks, and he was actually in jail for defrauding an innkeeper slash obtaining lodgings fraudulently. According to a social history written by authorities, quote, her letters to him are full of passionate, appealing longing, versed in rather vulgar, sensual terms which leave little to the imagination. (laughs) Oh, no. Um, Yeah, that's, yep. Um, Also in her letters, she planned to marry him upon her release from jail. She apparently did not anticipate being sent to the Idaho State Penitentiary for her forgery. But sent to the Idaho State Penitentiary, she is, and she enters on October 22nd, 1949. So her intake form, she uh, was born in Kelvin, Arizona. Her eyes are dark brown. Her hair is graying black. She is um, 67 and a half inches tall, so she's about 5 foot 7. Weight is 267 pounds. Medium complexion. She lived in Idaho for six years. Let's see. Not vaccinated. She drank liquor occasionally. She did smoke, but she did not gamble or do dope. There is a question on here that I've literally never noticed until this moment that says, are you a communist? Oh, uh, what? I've yeah, never seen that. Yeah. It's <gasps> on, like, you know, the ones that just have all the lines on it. So that you would, after you sort of give all these, like, details, then you would list your mother and your father and then, like, any kids you had. Uh Apparently, it's on that. So, I guess check those ones for for that question. I literally didn't even notice that until just now. That's funny. I'm probably going to start seeing it and be like, how did I miss this? Well, I mean, that's that's not a question that you expect. And it's probably only on these ones that are in the 40s and 50s. Yeah. Oh, man, crazy. I probably misread it Um, and saw the word circumcised. (laughs) Well, so that's the thing is there is that circumcised question. Oh, it's on there. Okay. Um, It's above it. Uh, So it's like, how long in Idaho, then circumcised, vaccinated, liquor, smoke, gamble, dope, are you a communist? Wow. Okay. We should post a photo of that. Just just a little snap of just that question because that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Who knew that? 
and then both her father and mother are listed as deceased. Her next of kin is an uncle named Newt Hatfield. He lived in Jerome. Her battalion is pretty empty, I guess, not the word I'm looking for, but there's not much to it. She's got a small scar in the middle of her forehead, a small scar on the inside and outside of her left forearm, and her teeth are listed as fair. Upon taking her social history, authorities said of her, quote, During the interview, Frances was friendly, very loquacious, and outgoing. From the interview and various sources, including the letters she wrote her lover, it would appear that Frances has a very limited moral sense, particularly <laughs> sexually. Her explanations do not appear adequate for her involvement in delinquency in regard to writing and attempting to pass bad checks. It is felt that she tends to exaggerate and prevaricate, and that all of her statements are open to verification. And while she's giving this social history, Frances mentions that she's got siblings, including a sister named Rose, who is living in Kelvin, Arizona. And so because both of her parents were deceased, authorities wrote Rose a letter, probably to ask information about Frances's early life. And on January 9th, 1950, Rose wrote a reply, quote, I am sorry that I am unable to help you in this matter, but to date I cannot recall having known of Francis Webb. In order not to do an injustice, I have asked the various members of my family to try to recall who this might be, but the name does not seem to register with any of us, end quote. Mm. So on January 25th, the authorities wrote back, quote, When Mrs. Webb was interviewed here, she stated that she had a sister by the name of Rose Redondo. She admits her name is not Webb, and she assumes that name so that her relatives would not know who she was. Her maiden name, she states, was Clara Frances Hall, and that she has been married several times. If Mrs. Webb is your sister, you probably heard of her the last time when she was going by the name either of Harrington or Weddell. And so finally, Rose wrote a reply. And she says, quote, Needless to say, the information contained in your letter of January 25 relative to Clara Frances Hall, alias Frances Webb, is indeed a shock, for I am one of her four sisters. We have only heard indirectly of her whereabouts now and then, and believe she lived in Idaho, but did not know where. I've discussed this matter with a sister, Mrs. Jim Harrison of Mammoth, Arizona, who suggested I send a copy of this letter to her, um, as well as to our oldest sister, Mrs. Leo Truofay, Walnut Creek, California. Inasmuch as we have never been in close contact, I see no point in starting a correspondence with her now, as I do not know what good it would do her. We should like to know something of the circumstances in this case, however, if it is not inconsistent with your rules. And of course, we would wish to be notified should anything happen to her or if there's something we can do to assist in handling the case, end quote. Mm. Nothing indicates that Frances had an unusual stay at the women's ward. There were eight other female inmates when Frances entered, including Verna Keller and Margaret Barney, two sort of big women that we haven't covered yet, and Elizabeth Lottie Lacey, again, who we have not covered, who was in for first-degree murder. Interestingly, of those eight other inmates, half of them were in for forgery, which goes to show you how common that crime is, especially for these women. Mm-hmm. Um Two of those women, however, would be released within a month of Francis's entrance. Again, women for forgery were just not kept in prison for that long, especially if it was their first offense. And then while Francis was in prison, the population was joined by four other inmates, including Grace Elizabeth Scott, who I profiled in the very first episode of the podcast. When Francis left, there were seven female inmates total, so for the most part, everyone gets a cell to themselves. This isn't really an overcrowded moment of the women's ward. 
After her minimum one year was up, Frances asked for a final release rather than just a parole. She says, quote, The reason I would like to have a final release is because a parole confines me to the state, as I have a son in Omaha, Nebraska, that I would wish to go visit now and then. I feel perhaps the parole board would not see fit to let me go if he should need me if I were on parole. However, I'll take a parole if the board see fit if they cannot give me a final release, end quote. So when they asked her plan, her parole plan was to go to Emmett, Idaho, where she had another son, um, where he lived and worked as a farmer. And then um, she also had um, that Uncle Newt, who lived in Jerome, who said that he uh, would help her when she was released. She was given a final release on February 7th, 1951. She served one year, three months, and 16 days of a 14-year sentence. So again, very, you know, most of the time these forgers, unless they're incredibly egregious, usually serve their minimum sentence. Mm -hmm. So I don't know too much about her life after she was released from prison, but I do know a little bit that apparently her life of crime did not end. On August 16th, 1952, which is um, about a year and a half after she was released from the penitentiary, the sheriff of Navajo County in Holbrook, Arizona, wrote Warden Lou Clapp asking for details on Francis's stay at the Idaho State Penitentiary, and apparently she had been arrested by Navajo County sheriffs for grand theft using aliases Francis Blankenship and Francis Castro. I could not find any ancestry records that detailed any marriages or anything else really of note, but I did find her death, um, and that was on February 22nd, 1971, in Florence, Arizona. Uh, She would have been about 65? My math is real bad because I'm a history person. She is buried in the Florence Cemetery under her first name, Clara Warner, and just a little bit of a fact, she actually outlived two of her sons, Richard, who died in 1951, and Donald, who died in 1961. And that is Frances Webb, who was actually Clara Frances Hall. Great work. That's uh, that's like a complete story of somebody's life. Like, you don't always mm-hmm. get that. Great work, Sky. We don't. Thank you. Yeah, we don't, especially for the women. We yeah. do not always get that. Well, and the yeah. Boise history, I like that, too. I mean... Yeah. I was worried this year we were going to have a snowpocalypse, uh, you know, 13 inches of snow on the ground sort of thing. And we didn't get any at all. Yeah, yeah. We, I'm uh, still mad about it, honestly. Uh, I yeah. was home from Texas for that reason, and it didn't <laughs> snow once. Oh. Well, it did snow, but it didn't stick. Yeah, that's it. It just, it just has not stuck this winter. To learn more about the Old Idaho Penitentiary, please follow Old Idaho Penitentiary on Facebook and Instagram. There you can buy tickets for entry, find updates about events, the online gift shop, and other exciting things about the site. If you'd like to know more about the Idaho State Historical Society and other historical sites, please visit history.idaho.gov. The Idaho State Historical Society is celebrating 140 years of service to Idahoans as the trusted source in protecting Idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories. As a part of the commemoration, the Old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked, lived, and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. 
Capturing 140 storytelling program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair and the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973. Stay tuned. Let's hear what you have got. Your very depressing story will end on the the depression. Yeah, I'm sorry, everybody. I'm just going to say that right now. (laughs) I am covering a fella named Vern Adrian McBride, number 2241, number 3290, and number 4357. So my sources today are his inmate files, uh, Library of Congress Chronicling America, Idaho Statesman, Newspaper.com Collection, Ancestry.com, the AdvantagePreservation.com collection of newspapers that are linked to many libraries throughout the country, ClintonIllinois.com, a Wikipedia article on smallpox, a really neat info comic at Topic.com called A Brief History of Folsom Prison, and an article titled The History Behind the Walls of Folsom State Prison by Sarah Heiss on KRA3 Sacramento, their news website. Lots to talk about here. Vern Adrian McBride was born on April 4th, 1894 in Clinton, Illinois, in DeWitt County to Stephen McBride and Minnie Jane Bogardus Garriott McBride. Clinton is smack dab in the middle of Illinois, and according to the city's website, they are, quote, one of the most productive agricultural areas in the nation, end quote. This would help explain why his father listed his occupation in the 1900 census as a farmhand and a laborer and listed other odd jobs in later census reports. So Vern was born the fourth of five children. He had two older sisters, Nora and Bertha, and an older brother named Calvin, and a brother 10 years younger than him named Stanley. According to Vern, the McBrides lived in a town 11 miles south of Clinton called Maroa, Illinois. And if I get that wrong, please let me know, of course. It is actually named after the tribe that lived in the area before white settlers arrived in the late 1830s. And I found that in the winter of 1903, when Vern was nine years old, he and the family were actually quarantined in Maroa after they were sickened with smallpox. Of course, smallpox is one of those illnesses where we've actually eradicated that through mass vaccinations. So I'm very thankful for that. And And smallpox was bad. It was was real bad. Horrible. Yeah, it would start as like these flu-like symptoms with fever and vomiting, muscle aches and pains and fatigue, and then these pussy ulcers would pop up in the mouth and on the skin, and they would pop and release, and it would spread the virus further across your body. And those on your skin, on the outside of your skin, would turn into these fluid-filled blisters, and they would scab over and fall off and leave scar tissue all over the body. Uh, if you if you want to see real horror, like search smallpox on Google Images. and I mean, I would recommend not doing that. Yes. I've never done that, and I have no desire to do so. I literally had nightmares. Like, last night, I, I literally Why? Why would dreamt. Why you do that to yourself? I don't know, Skye. I, I wish I hadn't looked. So It's eradicated. <laughs> we don't need to worry about we it don't anymore. Need... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's nasty. And luckily for Vern, like looking at his Bertillion, it doesn't look like he had a, a severe case of it. I didn't see anything, just minor scars here and there. So 1908, the family actually moves 1,500 miles west from Maroa to Filer, Idaho, just west of Twin Falls. 
It was this newly developed town in south central Idaho between Buell and Twin Falls, and it was named after the general manager of the Twin Falls Water and Land Company, Walter G. Filer. He was described in a newspaper article from 1907 as an engineer, mining expert, and capitalist identified with some of the largest mining and irrigation enterprises in Nevada, Utah, and Idaho at the turn of the century. He oversaw the construction of the diversion dam of the Snake River at Milner, which is a 2,000-foot-in-length dam that had all these spillways and raised the water elevation 49 feet and allowed this extensive farmland to be produced in the Twin Falls district and in these canals. And, I mean, this was huge news in 1905. And soon after this diversion dam was erected, the railroad actually started to pass through Filer. And so I actually found an advertisement for uh, business chances in the Interocean newspaper from Chicago from November 11th, 1907. And it said, quote, your opportunity for a business opening or a profitable investment in Filer town lots. The town is located in the geographical and commercial center of 600,000 acres of rich irrigated lands in Great Snake River Valley on Minidoka and southwestern RR, southern Idaho, the largest body of irrigated lands in America, and it's going to be a winner. For full information, address E.H. Reddig, Secretary, Filer Town Site Company Limited, Filer, Idaho, end quote. After this article, I actually found several mentions of families in Illinois packing their bags and heading to Filer, just like the McBrides did in 1908. In 1910, the family appeared in the census right there in Filer, and his father listed his occupation as a laborer in the industry of odd jobs, and his sisters listed housework, and Vern and his brothers listed their occupations as farmers. Vern actually wrote in a prison file, quote, Most of the years at Filer, I worked for my father going to school in the winter, end quote. Not long after this census, Vern and his friend Spencer Bell found themselves in trouble together in November 1911 for the very first time. Vern was 17 years old and on his first outlaw adventure. This is from the Twin Falls Times from November 28, 1911. Quote, Something unusual is in the air this week that has caused at least four boys to pull up and start for other crimes. Two Filer boys, Vern McBride and Spencer Bell, concluded they would break the monotony of the quiet life of Filer and go east. They reached Salt Lake and found the weather was beastly cold, and so was the people of the world. They started on their return at once and had reached Pocatello when they were picked up by officers of the law and held until Sheriff Benalsden could arrive for them. They were brought before the county judge yesterday and were paroled to their parents with a request to report to their official every week. The boys say they will profit by their experience, and we hope they will, end quote. The article actually never specifies what Vern and his buddy Spencer did besides running away, but I imagine they probably had to borrow a horse or two, and that's probably what they were busted for. So instead of jail times, or fines, they actually are required to just report to every week to the sheriff and stay out of trouble. And they did for about two months when a man named B.F. Lewis was going through his finances in late January and stumbled across a check in his checkbook that had been forged for $20 and passed at the local bank. Quote, it was at once suspicion that the check was the result of Vern McBride as he had worked for Mr. Lewis and had been paid in checks. 
When confronted with the evidence, young McBride acknowledged the crime and also implicated Spencer Bell with the deal and stated that Spencer had also cashed a check on one of the Lake Boys for a like amount, end quote. This was Vern's first dabble in the world of forgery. He ended up snitching on his friend, and both were arrested a second time, but again, the sheriff decided he would just give them one last chance and return them to this weekly check-in parole. November 10th, 1913, Vern and another friend named Quinn Patton, quote, concluded life was too dull in their neighborhood in Filer, Idaho, and on Monday appropriated Homer Patton's riding horse and went to Buell, end quote. So, Vern convinces his friend to steal his father's horse, these two horses, and go on a trip. And to prevent Homer, the father, from chasing them, quote, they took the bridle off the horse and tied it to the horn of the saddle and turned it loose. They then stole two horses that were tied to a rack and made their getaway. This is not the first offense of Vern, and he should have been in the reform school long ago, end quote. Vern was recaptured actually a week later in Twin Falls, and when officers arrested him, he was carrying a concealed weapon. They held him on a charge of carrying this concealed weapon while they investigated the horse theft. And when brought up for trial, Vern was acquitted for the charge of horse stealing. So Homer dropped the charges against him. He was let off by the courts this time. And this was his last chance as a youth. He left his father's farm and actually found a job at a nearby ranch where he handled cattle. But... That wasn't enough to keep him out of trouble. It's a wonder he was actually not sent to the industrial school at St. Anthony for all these previous things. But uh, this streak comes to an end at the end of 1914. Vernon and his pal Quinn Patton, again, and Quinn is only 16 at this point in 1914, they decide that they're going to go on this big-time outlaw spree and commit a series of late-night break-ins on November 30th in their hometown of Filer. Their first stop was the Kirkpatrick Pool Hall. They broke a window in the rear of the hall and reached in to unlock the door. And once inside, they actually headed straight to the safe and attempted to work the combination to no avail. They didn't know how to crack a safe. So instead, they are just teenage boys. They decide to steal three pipes, smoking tobacco, and cigarette papers. And they had actually made plans to meet up with another youth to rob a bakery after this, but, quote, this arrangement went wrong, end quote. They were actually arrested, like, in the middle of the night, and authorities stated, quote, one of the boys has confessed to the crime, end quote. And my guess is young Quinn, because authorities felt that uh, they needed to hold on to Vern, and they placed him under a $2,500 bond so that he would remain in town for his trial and remain in jail until his trial. Quinn pled guilty and was sent to the industrial school at St. Anthony just over two weeks after the arrest, and Vern was charged with burglary in the first degree and sentenced to the Idaho State Penitentiary to no less than one year nor more than 15 years. He celebrated New Year's in the Twin Falls County Jail and was brought to the Idaho State Penitentiary two days later with a letter signed by the district judge and the prosecuting attorney that stated, quote, the defendant is reported to be about 19 years old and has had kind and reputable parents and has had school advantages. The defendant was tried and acquitted once for larceny, and he informs the prosecuting attorney that he would not have gotten into trouble at all if he had not have been in bad company and allowed himself to be misled. Outside of his reputation as a bad boy, taking things which did not belong to him sometimes, 
not to much advantage to himself, the boy has not been criticized to any great extent. The defendant wants to learn some trade, and we trust that he will show himself worthy so that he may be in truth and in fact a good citizen after his release from your custody. Vern McBride is Bertillion. He is number 2241 on his first incarceration. He is received January 2nd, 1915 from Twin Falls, age 21. That's what he says. Born in Clifton, Illinois. Occupation, laborer, but without any apprenticeships. Height, 5 feet, 8 and 1 eighth inches tall. Complexion, medium. Weight, 139 pounds. Hair, dark brown and wavy. Color of eyes, brown. He's single, both parents living, and he left his parents when he turned 21, when he came to prison. He had religious instructions and attended Sunday school in a Christian church, but he didn't belong to any church anymore. He attended school for six years, had no further imprisonment, and his closest relative was Mr. S.D. McBride and Filer, his father Stephen. He had a medium regular build. His teeth were in good condition. Uh, he didn't have any facial hair and had resided in Idaho for seven years prior to his crime, he said. Uh, he had several scars on his body, one on his stomach, two on his right knee, and three on his back. And no specification what they look like or what they could have been from. But, you know, he's working on the farm, so it could be a, any number of things. So Vern came in, you know, the same year that Patrick Murphy first arrived at the prison in 1915. So you have a general reference of what was going on inside the institution Warden John Snook had set up fingerprinting a few years prior, so Vern's fingerprints would follow him for the rest of his life after he had the pleasure of sitting down with Mr. Snook. And Vern's file doesn't state what jobs he was given. Snook was, you know, finding work for the prisoners to prevent any form of idleness. And during the summer of 1915, he actually sent out 35 prisoners to help construct the state highway at Shoshone Falls with picks and shovels. They were set as trustees at this road camp, and it was the first work on the state highway, quote, ever performed by convict labor in this state. And the governor and legislator quickly caught on that free labor in return for extra good time for prisoners who didn't attempt to escape could lead to a better highway uniting northern Idaho and southern Idaho. So this program further developed in 1916 with another convict road camp established near Whitebird, Idaho, which is just south of Grangeville in northern central Idaho, so like north of McCall. And the, the prisoners were put to work grading the grounds and blasting and chiseling rock and developing the roadway. Prisoners were also in charge of the Gem State Farm in Owyhee County with 500 acres of land, which, you know, they grew 3,700 bushels of wheat, 1,442 bushels of oats, 500 sacks of potatoes, 60 tons of hay, 1,580 bushels of barley, 50 bushels of millet, 95 head of shoats and barrows, two calves, 200 hogs, and all kinds of vegetables that they were growing between 1915 and 1916. So with Vern's background in farming, he was most likely sent out to the prison farm. 1917-1918, the warden at that time further developed the Mosley Ranch system and established the Hurt Ranch near Nampa. And the warden at that time, his name was Frank Decay, he actually saw the impact of the road system. So he further developed those with four different new road camps established around the state. And he actually made it so that the prisoners working in those road camps would, would earn 50 cents a day, which is 
pretty amazing for that time. One camp was actually set on the eastern edge of the state near Jackson Hole, Wyoming, that was done, quote, under one unarmed guard, Mr. J.H. Lightfoot, and not a single man escaped. So far from the old pen, these prisoners are shipped to, to blast rock and, and lay this out. Now, this was 1917-1918. That's the middle of World War One. Um, was there any sort of, like, incentive that if they signed up for the army, they'd get, you know, X amount of time off, or they could get pardoned to go to the army? Was there any sort of thing like that? Yeah, yeah. There, there was that motivation that if you could convince the parole board that you wanted to join the army and, you know, you follow through with it, they would parole you out and actually completely pardon you if you join the military. So that was an option for sure. But he did not choose that option. He did not, no. (laughs) So that road over near Jackson Hole, the senator, Senator Hill at that time, and, quote, other experts in road building in southeastern Idaho, said it was the cheapest, best, and most satisfactorily constructed piece of road work in the state, end quote. The other roads that they started were at Barberton Road, just in East Boise, and uh, that required, you know, prisoners to blast all kinds of rock and huge boulders, which they used to create a retaining wall. The third road camp was established, constructing a road from the valley to Melba, and the final was in Boise, in which up to 15 prisoners were put to work patching, repairing, and resurfacing the roads near the fairgrounds. While incarcerated, Vern registered for the draft, as you were just mentioning, and he listed his present trade and occupation as inmate at the Idaho State Penitentiary, of course. And under one line that asks if he claims exemption from the draft for special grounds, he wrote, yes, his mother was dependent on him. So Vern was a first-timer. He applied for parole as soon as he could and as often as he could. He applied during the spring and summers of 1917 and was denied both times. He then applied at the end of 1917 and was denied on January 3rd, 1918. He applied again later that summer and was finally granted a parole back to Filer on September 16th, 1918. He's back at home, and at some point in the next year, Vern found himself sitting at the parish jail in New Orleans for 30 days. He had acquired a new alias, John Kelly, and I searched through a bunch of Louisiana newspapers and could only find one reference under this alias. And it says, John H. Kelly violating speed law. And that was from February 7th, 1919. So I don't know for certain if that was him, but uh, it was in the criminal section. I mean, this is is like early, early automobiles. Right, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't if, know I mean, any more details. I'm no car expert, but I don't like Model T is late teens, I think. Maybe it's early teens. Mm. But that's interesting. Unless it was like with a horse, which would <laughs> maybe be funnier. <laughs> yeah, I don't know any details about this. He would just actually mention this later in his next incarceration. And so that's, you know, I tried and tried to see if there were any details, but Man, I could not find it. I didn't. I don't know what name he was arrested under. I'm only guessing because, well, we'll get to that in just one moment here. On September 30th, 1919, 
Vern, living under the identity of John H. Kelly because he had skipped his parole in Idaho, was traveling on a train from Portola, California, near Reno, Nevada, to Oroville, California, which is between Chico and Yuba City in Central California. Vern was riding with a friend named H.L. Meyering and a new acquaintance named Charles Taylor, who was a musician. The three men joined a lone traveler named D.N. Goodman in a train car, and Goodman fell asleep, which provided an opportunity for Charles Taylor to pilfer his pockets. When Goodman woke up, his three train mates were missing, and so was his wallet, which reportedly contained anywhere between $150 and $500, depending on which newspaper description I read. Goodman immediately contacted authorities who tracked down the three men who were occupying a room in the Oro Vista lodging house. The sheriff searched the room and found a wallet hidden behind a dresser with $250 in it. The three men were arrested, and at the jail, nearly $200 was taken from them when the officers made them strip, and a wad of cash was actually found in a secret pocket in the leg of Meyering's jeans, along with the most damning piece of evidence, a check bearing the name of Goodman. So they all denied the charge at first, but finally the musician, Charles Taylor, admitted the charge, and he told authorities that he took the money from Goodman's pocket while he was asleep and then Myring and Kelly, a.k.a. Vern McBride, witnessed it and said that they would rat him out if he didn't share. So he divvied up the money with them. The three men finally admitted their guilt, and they applied for a probation in lieu of a prison term. And the judge actually handed them an indeterminate sentence of from 1 to 10 years on October 20th, 1919. Vern was actually housed with Myring in the county jail, awaiting uh, their transfer to the prison, and they worked out a deal with this trustee who was delivering their food, who snuck a large knife to them. They hatched a plan to escape, and according to the jailer, Fred Burt, quote, I took them their food in the morning. They talked rather cheerful. In the evening, however, when I entered the cell for the third time during the day, I noticed that neither Kelly nor Myring came into the hallway to secure their dinner. I suppose they were in their cell. I locked the door and went downstairs. Thinking that I would make sure that they were both in their cells, I again went upstairs. They had evidently hid in the corridor, and as I passed through the first door, they ran out behind me, end quote. From there, they ran downstairs and past the office of the undersheriff, who was sitting at his desk. He pulled his gun out and shot into the air, and Myring decided that it wasn't his day. So he actually turned around and ran back upstairs and asked Fred Burt to return him to his cell. But Vern, he decided, you know, this is his only chance to get out, and he kept running. He made it out the door, crossed High Street, and the sheriff took another shot. This one struck Vern's neck from behind through to his right cheek as he crossed the street in the direction of the train depot. He fell to the ground and was quickly apprehended and taken to the hospital. When authorities discovered the knife in their cell, it was revealed that if they didn't make it out by sneaking behind Fred Burt that night, they were going to kill him the next morning when he brought them their breakfast. Newspaper reports varied on how life-threatening the gunshot was. One article from the Gridley Herald was headlined, quote, State prisoner expected to die. That same day, though, the Oroville Daily Register had a headline, quote, Prisoner who was shot is recovering, stating, quote, Kelly is now in the county jail, seemingly suffering but little. His right cheek is slightly swollen. Otherwise, he is in first-class condition, 
end quote. <laughs> and I mean, that's such a testament to that, like, modern day is not the only time that we have, like, quote unquote, like, <laughs> fake news. Like, early newspapers just sort of printed whatever they thought would sell. Like, truth yeah. was not really a, 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 I mean, at times it was, but, like, you know, how many times have you and I read newspaper clippings that, like, one says that, like, this thing happened and it was so sensational and, like, all these crazy things happened and then, like, the next day in the same newspaper, it, like, everything is toned down and you're just right. like, sorry, why did we print that first one then? Like, <laughs> it just shows you that this is not anything new. You know, it was really strange because I feel like Idaho newspapers, compared to the ones that I was looking at in California, they're fairly reliable you know, the story stays fairly close to the same. The ones in California, I was like, this is a whole different story. And all the spellings are different. <laughs> I, I'm i I'm just saying, like, you know, I don't want to start a beef with California or Californians who are listening. Uh, listen, I think Idahoans <laughs> have lots of beef with Californians <laughs> right now. And if you don't know why, ask an Idahoan. Um, but I, I wonder, too, if that had anything to do with, like, the size of the place that, like... You know, Boise and Idaho was such a small place that, like, mm-hmm. if a newspaper man, like, puts his name to something and you, like, get all the details wrong, like, that person will come in and be like, hey, man, what's this? <laughs> and, you know, in California, things are so big that, like, you so can try, people. but, yeah. like, yeah, like, it's big and you can kind of get away with more stuff. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I don't know. I When I get through all this California stuff, like, if anyone knows the truth and can correct anything I say, like, please do, because there, I seriously found so many conflicting articles, and I just chose kind of the one that seemed the most plausible and reliable, but yeah, it's definitely a game of telephone going through a lot of newspapers like this. Actually, looking at Vern's mugshot, taken just about a week later, you can see this small blemish on his neck and on his cheek, and his, his right cheek is swollen, but otherwise, like, he was lucky. I this this that could have been his death. This could have been the end of that episode right there. It just grazed him though. That same Oroville Daily Register article said that, quote, in a conference with Sheriff Webster yesterday, Kelly confessed he had served jail sentences on several former occasions and that he had also escaped from prison before. And this is directly from him. Alexander is the first official I have found that I couldn't bluff, said Kelly yesterday. And I love that he's admitting all of this but it's still under this alias (laughs) like i can just see him just grinning like oh yeah i'm kelly like yeah yeah i'm john kelly like definitely well i wonder too though like i mean that all they had to be was like kelly like they would ask him he'd be like yeah that's me and then you know like it's not like okay so can you state your name like they would just be like, are you John Kelly? He'd be like, yeah. And they'd be like, okay, we have some questions for you. And so then it, it does seem weird, like, in the newspaper. But by that point, he probably is, like, past the point of having to, like, continually remember that, like, oh, yeah, I'm this guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Well, it gets found out pretty quickly after. So the, all three men, they're actually taken to San Quentin. And Charles Taylor and H.L. Meyering, they arrive on October 24th, and Vern arrives five days later on October 29th. He was actually processed on Halloween, October 31st, 1919. And they were each given this indeterminate sentence of from one to ten years. Of course, you know, authorities in California quickly discovered that this John Kelly was in fact Vern McBride due to his fingerprints that John Snook had taken just uh, five years prior. And... So they actually sent 
his mugshot and intake information to the warden in Idaho, which are still in Vern's file today. So this is uh, from his California intake. Name, John Kelly, number 33122, and this is all San Quentin. Color, white. Color of hair, black. So it went from dark brown to black. Color of eyes, brown. Teeth, good. Chin, square. Height, 5 feet 9 and 1 eighth inch. Age, 24. Complexion, fair. Weight, 157 pounds. Sentence, 1 to 10 years. County, Butte. Crime, grand larceny. Occupation, iron molder. Previous record, 30 days, county jail, New Orleans. Mark's indented scar on right cheek, a new scar. And then in red at the bottom of this form says number 2241, Boise, Idaho, violated for his parole. And it appears that since his first intake in 1915, he had grown an inch, gained 20 pounds, and had a new occupation as an iron molder, as well as this new indent on his right cheek. He's transferred from San Quentin to Folsom Prison on November 20th, 1919. So just about 20 days later, and given the number 11339. And I couldn't find an exact reason, but I can speculate that it was, you know, the transfer was because of his escape attempt. And Folsom at that time was considered a maximum security institution. San Quentin is actually the oldest prison in California, which opened 20 years before Idaho's penitentiary in 1852. Folsom opened eight years after Idaho's in 1880. So, For the first four decades, Folsom didn't have walls around it. They actually were under construction while Vern was serving his time there, and they were completed a year after his release in 1923. The prisoners were actually sent to a nearby granite quarry where they mined the stone during the day, just like the Idaho State prisoners, and Vern most likely would have been one of those young men sent out to the quarry. There was also this ice plant in Folsom where prisoners were put to work making ice, which allowed fruit growers to ship their produce nationwide, which, you know, developed the California fruit industry into this massive economy that we still have today. There's also a prison baseball team from 1915 to 1965 that, like the outlaws at the Idaho pen, would play touring teams. And then in the 1930s, Folsom prisoners actually also began making license plates about a decade before Idaho prisoners started their factory. Of course, Johnny Cash wrote the famous Folsom Prison Blues in 1953 and recorded it in 1955 and performed live at Folsom in front of the prison audience in 1968. I don't have access to Verd's Folsom file besides the intake information, so I did some digging through Library of Congress chronicling America and found a few stories, including one from March 1920, in which members of the IWW, the International Workers of the World, this labor union termed Wobblies, which had Yeah, ties. the Wobblies. Yeah, the Wobblies. That's like one of my favorite things about them. Then, <laughs> you know, they had ties to syndicalists and socialists and anarchist movements. But these, these Wobblies were taking chemistry classes through the University of California Extension Program at the prison. And they were learning how to make explosives while in prison. So that was put to an end. Uh, I mean, I have a question, though. Yeah. Were they or, <laughs> you know, at this point, the United States is in the middle of the first Red Scare. Mm-hmm. And the IWW, so, I mean, you know this already, and but this is just a little bit of a history background. So 
um, there's a couple different sort of labor unions, and the IWW is, they were started because there were certain occupations that wouldn't be able to, they wouldn't, they, so there's the American Federation of Labor, and they were for, like, kind of upper crust-ish kind of white collar, but they would let some blue collar people in, but not very often. And then there was the, oh, I want to say the CIO, and I can't remember what that one is, but basically, like, if you were just like a common laborer, you were not allowed into unions. And that's what the IW, basically the IWW was started and they said, we will accept anyone from any job. And so they became known as sort of the working class. And that's why they sort of got that like socialist, anarchist. And so if we're in the middle of the first Red Scare and the IWW is associated with all these like scary buzzwords, I wonder, like, were they involved in making explosives or was like one guy messing with like you know explosives or chemistry or whatever and something exploded and then they learned he was oh he's a member of the IWW they all must be doing it like right yeah I'm a bit skeptical (laughs) I just thought it was it was fun it kind of showed that hey they had they had college courses that they were allowing at the prison at this time in 1920. Like, that's such yeah. an early time. And then, of course, it's supposedly being abused by a dangerous, you know, communist union. So <laughs> that same month, there were discussions about actually paying the prisoners that worked a wage in place of the system that was going on at that time in which the state basically just provided money for the families and children of those serving time at San Quentin and Folsom so that the prisoner decided what happened with the money and not the state. In May 1920, a uh, prisoner named Carl Otto serving a life sentence in Folsom and two other men actually ran a switch engine train through the heavy outer gate of the prison under a hail of gunfire. They bust through the gate and into the stone quarry. About a thousand feet from the prison, Carl jumped off and actually ran through the fields, making it to the American River, where he disappeared while the other two men were quickly captured. Prisoners, they wore these gray suits, and they had these shoes with these distinctive markings on the bottom, which made it easy for the authorities to track them, and they tracked his footprints right up to the riverbank. Carl's photo was printed in newspapers all around California, and he was supposedly spotted in all kinds of places. He was supposedly getting a shave, he bought some bread, he was working as a dishwasher in a restaurant, and... It was this unfortunate man who happened to be a perfect double, as he was described in the newspaper, of Carl Otto. Carl ended up getting caught in Oakland two months later in July 1920 on the corner of 8th and Franklin Street when Inspector John Mulhern spotted him walking through the crowd and they got into this serious fistfight, which ended with the inspector actually bashing Otto unconscious with this thing called a slung shot, which is basically a, a sap. And Otto, you know, he was considered the most dangerous escape convict in California at the time. So Vern would have been up on his story. He would have been following this along with the rest of the prison population. A month after Otto's capture, another prisoner named George Davis attempted to escape. But he strapped these these giant mail-order catalogs to his chest to create this, like, body armor from the Folsom Guards rifles. And he ran... And he made it to the river, but when he was in the water, one of the guards shot, and the bullet tore through the catalog and struck him in the heart. 
So this is a pretty effective escape deterrent for Vern McBride. He actually kept his nose clean and was released on parole on May 26, 1922. And he was discharged from parole later that year on November 19, 1922. Now, during this time, his father actually, back in Filer, had actually died on June 8th uh, at the age of 62 in 1920. So I'm not sure if he would have known about it. I don't know if his family was informed that he was serving time there. There's just, you know, not a lot of documentation, and I don't have access to his his fulsome file. He returns to eastern Idaho, and he starts looking for work around Pocatello, and you'll see how far he got here. This is from his intake paper for his next incarceration, and we'll break it all down. Quote, He and another man, the latter blindfolded, so we can't identify him, but think he is a prominent bootlegger from Pocatello, went in a room where a card game was in progress in this town last March, and McBride held two revolvers on the crowd while the disguised man went through their pockets picking off about $600. McBride is reported to have said that he needed the money so bad that if anybody moved, he would kill them, and from his demeanor, I presume they thought he meant it. So... I looked for hours to see if this was documented in newspapers and couldn't find anything about this holdup, just the references to it from, you know, what happens next. There's one name in a single newspaper from July 5th, 1923, that mentions, quote, Vern McBride, formerly a filer for robbery of F.E. Lowry of $257.50, end quote. Any guesses of what the name of the sheriff of American Falls might be? (laughs) Frank Lowry, Sheriff Frank Lowry. So this is just speculation because I could not find any newspaper coverage of the gambling or the stick-up, which might make sense if the sheriff isn't feeling too keen on sharing that he was robbed while doing something, you know, some possibly uh, questionable gambling in that Mm -hmm. town. This is like the moment in Casablanca where the police is like, I don't know if you've seen it, but he's just like the police is, he's a French policeman and he's in Morocco and he's just like, I'm shocked to find out that there's been gambling here. And then the guy comes up and he's like, here's your winning, sir. Like, <laughs> Precisely, yeah. Very yeah. much like that. <laughs> yeah, it was so, so, I spent so many hours looking for this because it sounds like such a crazy scene. This guy bursts through the doors. He's got two six shooters in his hand. He's telling everybody, put them up, you know, and, and this other guy comes in. He's got a blindfold, this like bandit mask on. He's pilfering all this money and they run out you know like that that would have been a huge story in eastern idaho and i i look through all the newspapers in twin falls and blackfoot and franklin and oh man i could not find a single mention of it the rest of this write-up from the intake says quote they got away with the money and mcbride was not located until a few weeks later he was picked up by the federal officers and tried before the federal court of pocatello After he served his time there, he was brought back here. He first pled not guilty, and while waiting for trial, broke jail, was recaptured in Montana, and when brought back again, he pled guilty. Jump back, break it all down. Prohibition is in full force at this time, and bootleggers were being picked up left and right. And as we mentioned in previous episodes, there's good money to be made bootlegging. And as we saw in California... Vern was not one to shy away from a little questionable action to make a quick buck. And 
Late March 1923, authorities were actually given some hot tips and began busting a series of bootlegging operations in Bannock County. In Lava Hot Springs, they uncovered a large haul after discovering a 600-gallon mash tank and 35 gallons of finished moonshine on a property. Quote, they maneuvered in the vicinity of a haystack for some time and plainly detected the odor of the forbidden juice, but they could not locate it until one of the officers noted a small knotted rope protruding from the stack. He pulled on the rope and a trap door opened. A tunnel led back under the stack about 15 feet when a ladder opened the way to a cellar of good capacity, end quote. The next day, officers in Pocatello pulled Vern over and searched his car and discovered two gallons of moonshine. He pled guilty and was, quote, fined $200 on each count with an alternative sentence in the Bonneville County Jail, end quote. So Vern actually decided to pay the fine, $400, most likely with his recently acquired money after sticking up the gamblers, and he took off before the Power County Sheriff could arrest him. At some point in late June, Vern is arrested again in Idaho Falls and then taken to Power County to await trial for the stick-up. And he wouldn't be there very long. On July 2nd, 1923, around 9 p.m., a local owner of a tailoring shop visited his brother-in-law at the Power County Jail, this man named Jimmy Duffy, who was looking at a stint in the prison for car theft. The brother-in-law brought in an attorney with them to defend Duffy in court, and the jailer, his name was E.J. Sailing, he gave them access to the sheriff's office to discuss the case. The sheriff had specifically told the jailer that the prisoners were not allowed outside of their cell due to their lengthy records, and had cautioned him many times previously not to allow anyone in the jail after business hours unless accompanied by other officers or with special permission from the sheriff himself. He breaks this rule. He lets Duffy go in, meet with his brother-in-law and this attorney. And after a brief meeting, they decide, you know, let's let's meet again tomorrow morning. So the jailer says, all right, good, eat, good night, you know, lets the folks out. And he takes Duffy back to his cell. As he opens the cell door and takes a step back to let Duffy in, Duffy punches him square in the jaw and knocks him to the ground. With the cell door open, his cellmates, who happen to be Vern McBride and a fellow named Jimmy Doyle, they rush out and help Duffy beat, tie, and gag the jailer. They take his gun, carry him to the bathroom, handcuff him to the plumbing, cover his face with a blanket, and lock the door. They flee. And after a few hours of struggling, Sailing was able to ungag himself and shout until a local worker actually heard him from outside the jail and helped him escape through a window in the bathroom. Authorities were alerted to be on the lookout for the trio, and an illustrated circular was sent by Power County offering a $50 reward for their capture. It was thought that they either hopped a train or had a car waiting for them outside, and Sailing immediately admitted his fault and told reporters, quote, I just took one chance too many. Poor guy. So Jimmy Duffy, he actually split off from Vern and Jimmy Doyle, and those two actually headed to Montana together, and they were captured by the end of the month in Forsyth, Montana, and brought back. And again, I couldn't find any information from any newspapers in Montana about their capture or anything like that. From there, Vern actually pled guilty, and he arrived at the prison on August 8, 1923, for the charge of robbery. He's given the sentence of five years flat. Barring any escape attempts or infractions, he would be released on May 30, 1927, with good time. So, again, his battalion was similar to the previous ones mentioned. 
Fern was five feet, nine inches tall. He was back down to 139 pounds. So he's fluctuating between 139 and 159 pounds. He was described as athletic and well-built. He had a scar on his stomach and one on his right knee. He noted that his father had passed away and listed seventh grade as the highest he had reached education-wise. He also listed intemperate in his habits of life, meaning he was a heavy drinker. And he also listed his mother, Minnie McBride, who still resided in Filer, Idaho, as his closest relative, and the condition of his teeth were still listed as good. Again, this file is very sparse. After the shirt factory opened in the mid-1920s, most of the endeavors were put to a halt, and Vern would most likely have just been working there throughout his entire sentence. He kept his nose clean and stayed out of trouble, built up his good time, and it led to his release on May 30th, 1927. And he appeared to stay out of trouble over the next couple of years. Uh, he began changing his life around. He married a woman named Frances Greenfield on August 30th, 1930 in Twin Falls. And Frances, she was actually born in 1907 in North Carolina, one of eight children. So a big family, just like Ferns. And the Greenfields actually moved to Utah, where her father worked for the Utah Construction Company. And on April 28, 1915, a day after his 27th birthday, he was in a, a horse race in Montello, Nevada. He fell off the horse and was kicked in the head, which led to a fatal skull fracture. He died the next day from the injury, and Frances and her siblings were raised by her widowed mother, who moved the family north to Filer, Idaho. So members of the family, they, just like the McBrides, they worked on local farms, and at one point, Francis had a daughter named Beverly in 1928 out of wedlock, and it appears that Vern basically raised Beverly like his own uh, during their, their short marriage. Hmm. And, you That's know. Nice. It's a bit of a bright spot in an otherwise tough career thus far. Yeah, but fortunately, again, Vern just could not stay out of trouble. He just saw an opportunity and he took it. So like the previous crime, I couldn't find any mentions, any breakdowns of it in the newspaper, but I do have the prosecuting attorney's documents that spell out what happened. So on January 3rd, 1931, less than a year since he's been married now, he felt an urge to commit grand larceny. Quote, the prisoner entered the yards of the owner of some cattle, having previously borrowed a gun and slaughtered an animal, skinned it, dressed it, and sold the beef throughout the agency of another person. We feel that there are other associates, but so far have been unable to get the evidence sufficient to convict him, McBride refusing to divulge this information. End quote. He ended up pleading guilty on January 16th and was sentenced to from 3 to 14 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary, his third strike in Idaho, and he was looking at little chance of release from prison. The prosecuting attorney also wrote that while reflecting on the criminal tendencies of Vern, quote, I would not say he was vicious. Rather, I'm inclined to the opinion that he is not strong mentally and is easily influenced by his bad associates. He has no conscientious scruples against committing a crime that he would again commit a crime at someone's suggestion. He should not be released, end quote. Asked if he thought Vern was a menace to society, 
the attorney wrote, quote, Yes, I regard him a menace to society because of his mental attitude concerning the law, having no respect for it, whatever. His tendency to be easily influenced, if liberated, would again commit an infraction, end quote. And the district judge, uh, William Babcock, wrote to the prison board a month later saying, quote, As I recall the circumstances connected with this case, the defendant killed a cow belonging to Mr. Larson in this county, butchered it, and peddled the meat. He's a man about 35 years old, has a wife and small children. He has been heretofore connected of a similar crime in this state and served a sentence in the penitentiary. I also understand that he had been convicted of a felony in some other states. End quote. So Vern arrives at the prison on January 26, 1931. He's 36 years old and still had the same frame from his previous incarceration. His Bertillion was essentially the same. This time, though, he had a wife and children to list and to think about. So Vern returned to his job in the shirt factory, and day in and day out, he made shirts. There were 161 machines to stitch shirts with enough workbenches to employ 220 men. And according to the 1931-1932 biennial report, Warden Thomas wrote, quote, Our output is made up of work, flannel, and low-priced, light-colored shirts. We have a maximum output of about 1,200 to 1,300 dozen shirts per week. So we're talking 14,000 to 15,000 shirts made at the Idaho State Penitentiary a week in 1931-1932. Yeah, it's not bad. The warden continued about the importance of the work, not only to keep the men busy, but, quote, it plays a very important part in assisting us to judge when a man has reached the point when we feel he should be given a chance to again take his place among his fellow men. The man who makes no effort to do his work nor follow the rules and regulations laid down has certainly not shown us that he has any thoughts of applying himself. And if he will not apply himself while here, it is certainly natural for us to suppose that he will not apply himself on the outside. End quote. Vern labored through the winter and the spring, and when summer arrived, he began to grow despondent. On July 13, 1931, Vern went through the same routine woke up, had breakfast, reported to the shirt factory. But that day, he sat at his station and refused to work. Guards told him to start, but he just sat there, so they took him to an undisclosed punishment cell. As the guards locked him up, he told one, quote, don't come after me, for I am not coming back, end quote. Vern took his overalls off, tore them into strips, and quote, wove a rope and fastened it to the top of his cell. Then he climbed onto a water bucket, fixed a noose about his head, and kicked his footing out from under himself. Guards found his lifeless body hanging by an improvised rope about three o'clock when they entered the cell to take McBride food. End quote. <sighs> Newspapers reported that Vern had been planning this for weeks. Quote, Warden R.E. Thomas said he was despondent because his wife at Twin Falls planned a divorce. McBride wrote to his mother at Klamath Falls, Oregon, that she's going to get a divorce and writes me she can't stand the disgrace of my being in prison, end quote. His body was taken to Summers and Krebs Funeral Home and then taken to Twin Falls, Idaho for burial. So he's 37 years old, and he actually shares a headstone with his father. Now... Mm -hmm. Interestingly, there's actually a book that was, uh, it's called A Bandit Called Derby, written by a former prisoner 
that I will definitely cover in a future episode, and his name was Derby Jones. And Derby's life, I mean, it paralleled Vern's, just multiple incarcerations across multiple states, uh, robberies and bootlegging and, you know, all these crimes in the 20s and 30s. And in this passage, he had just been recently released from the pen. And what he says is backed up, actually, by Vern's death certificate that lists Francis McBride as the informant. So he basically said that Vern did not kill himself due to the divorce, that Vern had told his wife that they should get divorced so that she could leave him. And, yeah, it's just heartbreaking that, like, the newspaper is saying that he killed himself because he had received these divorce papers, but he, in fact, had not. And he was telling his wife that he was holding her back by staying married and that he didn't foresee himself ever being released from prison. And so basically to free her, he killed himself in prison, which is oh, just so heartbreaking. And, you know, it's unfortunately still a fairly common reason for prisoners to take their own lives today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Francis and and Beverly actually moved on, and Francis remarried by the end of 1930, and she ended up dying in 1984 and is buried in Portland, Oregon. And Beverly married and died in 2004 and was interred in Kent, Washington. And both seem to have, you know, great lives after this brief relationship with Vern in their life. So, everybody, I am sorry. Way to bring us down. I know. I mean... His life was just so action-packed. There was just so much criminality left and right. And, you know, he was all over the place. And Yeah, I mean, I can't add anything. That's, well, should we end it before we get too too sad? If such a thing yeah, is possible. Think, if we can get I, more sad than we are. I think we should, yeah. So, okay. everybody, give your loved ones a a huge hug show them that you appreciate them today and uh i appreciate you all listening thank you so much all right everybody do your own time and do your own number see you next week if you enjoyed behind gray walls please rate review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show but it helps others find us as well If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And new this season, we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod. 